Welcome to Heart, Soul, and Mind, the podcast from Centenary United Methodist Church. I'm Dr. Glenn Kinkin, Senior Minister here at Centenary. My hope is that this podcast will give you some good news for your journey today. If you would join with me in your Bible or the Pew Bible in front of you, uh, today's text is going to be from the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Here with me now the words of the prophet. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the highest of the mountains, and it shall be raised above the hills, and all the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and he shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. My friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Almighty and gracious Lord, We gather this morning to hear your word read and proclaimed, and as we do so, may you speak so clearly to us that we could not mistake your words. May you speak so clearly to us that our hearts might be moved. May you speak so clearly to us that our lives would be changed. And that we would leave this place not as mere hearers of your words, but as doers of your words. In your son's holy name, we pray. Amen. So imagine with me, if you will, that you are gathered one evening over at the Joel or at the Dean Dome or at... Cameron Indoor Stadium, or at my favorite place, you know, the basketball arena on Davidson's campus, and it's a packed-out night. I mean, it's rivalry night. It's us versus them. And half of us are the us, the other half of you are the them, but we're cheering our team on. We are right. We have the high ground. We might even think that maybe God was on our side. God doesn't choose. We're thinking this, that we're cheering, and the game is going on. It's heated, it's contested, it's back and forth and back and forth, and it's loud, and we're fussing at the refs, and we're maybe saying some things that we wouldn't say in church, in our cheers, and we're yelling for our team, and then all of a sudden, in the midst of it all, something happens. A hard foul, a player gets injured, someone goes down, and at that moment, what happens in the room? A hush falls over the crowd 
as this player is writhing on the court in pain. As the medical team comes out to attend to them, we're silent. Some of the players take a knee, some of them hold hands. Maybe even some are in quiet prayer. And then in that moment, that glorious moment when the medical staff either brings out the stretcher or the player gets up and walks off somewhat under their own power, what happens? But we all clap and cheer. But for one moment, with our mortal enemies on the other side of the court from us, one moment we were no longer enemies, but we were concerned fans. The rivalry was set aside. The winner, the loser didn't matter. What mattered most was the health, the safety, and the welfare of that player. And it unites us in that moment. And for that moment and that moment alone, inside that arena, there is but one word. Peace. I just want to hang on to that image. I want you to hang on to that for a moment. This idea of peace in the midst of that battle on the court. I want you to hold on to that this morning. So read the passage from Isaiah. What's happening to the Israelites, they are in the midst of war. They are in turmoil and strife. The Assyrians are on the march to the Mediterranean and they are oppressing and capturing and subjugating the Israelites. The Israelites are infected with a little bit of this sort of individualism. They are fighting a battle on the front, but they're also sort of fencing things in for themselves and maybe even fighting amongst themselves. It's all about me, if you will. It's self-preservation. And so Isaiah writes this prophecy predicting the future. Now some scholars say that at that time they were thinking this would be the end times that Isaiah is writing about. Others are thinking, well, maybe Isaiah is really postulating about the coming of the Messiah. Maybe in their time they were thinking they would both be the same. But the point is Isaiah says that in later days, in some time to come, God is going to act. And God is going to establish a house on a high mountain, a place of high authority so that everyone across the land can see this house. And at that time, there are three things that are going to happen. God has established his house on the high mountain and three things are going to happen. The first is that the nations, the people, they are going to come to the mountain to learn the ways of the Lord. The second is that the Lord is going to judge between the nations. He's going to arbitrate and adjudicate all of their strife, all of their infighting, and he's going to settle it out amongst them. There's an equality to that. And that while they are there, while this adjudication is happening, the people will learn peace. They will find this peace and they will practice it. They will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. The idea that there will be new growth to come forth. So in many ways, as we read this prophecy, it becomes an Advent message to us. Because what we know is, as I said last week, we know the rest of the story. We know that God comes amongst the people to show us the way. So in that babe of Bethlehem, the one that was born the Prince of Peace, we begin to understand that we have received and have been given the gift of peace. 
And so as we begin to realize that and look at this passage, it sort of dawns on us that we need to seek that peace by also walking in the Lord's ways. That we need to experience that peace realizing that Christ has arbitrated the the tension for us amongst all the nations that reconciles us to God. And finally, that we need to live that peace by simply burying the hatchet in our lives. And when we do that, in those moments when we come to those same realizations that Isaiah was prophesying about, what begins to matter is that the winning and losing doesn't matter. The self-righteousness fades away and peace reigns supreme. Isaiah writes, So the people will say, let us go to the mountain of the Lord so that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his steps. I mean, for us to give the gift of peace, we need to learn what that peace is, what that gift to us is. And what better way to do that than to actually walk in the steps of the one who brought peace? What better way than to learn from the master, if you will? I mean, we look at his life and his teaching. It was about bringing peace. It was about grace and forgiveness, which brings peace in our lives and peace in the lives of all who listen to him. Look at his teachings. When one of the disciples says, Lord, how often do I need to forgive my neighbor? Jesus says, what does it say in the law? And it says seven times. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let's try seven times 70. Now, Jesus didn't mean 490 times. What he really meant was forgive and forgive and forgive. And if you can forgive 490 times, chances are you're tired of forgiving, so you're ready just to be done with it, right? That's the point, forgive constantly. Or this idea when he's talking to the woman at the well, and and he says, aren't you going to offer me cold water? And she says, but shouldn't you be giving it to me? And he says, the water I give you is the water of life. Let the warring in your soul, let the worry, let your grief, let your own lack of self-esteem, let your own guilt pass away. Or that night in the garden when he was betrayed, one of his disciples drew the sword to protect him and lopped off the ear of a Roman soldier. And what did Jesus do? He told the disciple, put your sword away. And he reaches into the dirt and he picks the ear up and he places it back on the head of the Roman soldier and heals him right there on the spot. The very one that was coming to arrest him, he heals him and makes him whole again. Or earlier that evening when they gathered in the upper room, he broke bread, he poured out the last cup of wine, he said, this is my body, this is my blood, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did all this with Judas at the table, with Peter who would betray him, three, deny him three times, with the rest of the disciples who would go into the garden and then fall asleep, couldn't even maintain their watch with the Lord on his last night. The same one that taught us the peace of turning the other cheek, of walking the extra mile, of giving the shirt off of our back, even to our oppressors if they asked for it. 
See, in the centuries before Christ, the people were asking, what does God want us to do? Who does God want us to be? How does God expect us to live? And so they came up with the laws. They got the laws from God, thinking that that would be it. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. But what happened was we began to use, the, we began to weaponize the laws. Well, I do four out of five of these, so, you know, I'm not as good as you, but at least I'm better than that cat who doesn't do any of them. We began to sort of take this idea of self-righteousness, and so God says, oh, no, it's not what I was doing. I will go amongst them and show them the way. And so through the joy of God in our midst, we began to understand what it was that God wanted. Christ showed us the path of peace. So for us to give peace, for us to live in peace, we need to understand what this peace of Christ means. We do that by spending time with Christ by reading about him in the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, understanding the different ways that Christ brought peace into the world. And when we do that, we begin to understand why he was called from the very beginning the Prince of Peace, even when he was a babe in a manger. But any teaching system always has sort of like an escalation, sort of a rubric, kind of like, you know, walk, I mean, crawl, walk, and run, or tell, show, and do. It's essentially learn, experience, and then live. That's essentially what any teaching system tries to share, convey information about so that we internalize the knowledge, understand it, and then go forth and share it ourselves. So if we learn from Christ about peace, then we need to ask ourselves, how do we experience that peace in our lives? So what comes to mind are four things for me. One is this idea that we come to the table of the Lord as we will in just a few minutes when the server hands you a piece of the bread and says the body of Christ broken for you or gives you the cup and says the blood of Christ shed for you, that's not just sort of a rubric. That's not a line that we use because they told us that or it's in the liturgy and we just read what's there. There's meaning behind that. The body of Christ broken for me. As well as the rest of you, but when it, at that moment in time, it's all about you. It's broken for you. Friends, that's the peace of Christ. Or this moment of self-accountability when we begin to think about so we're taking stock of our lives and realize where we have fallen short of God's desires, the things that we do that break the heart of God, the things that we do that create a distance, that build a wall between us and God. At that moment in time when we realize that we have fallen short of who God wants us to be, and we mourn that, what we know is just on the other side of that wall, on the other side of that chasm, that there is grace and forgiveness waiting for us. Right as rain, waiting for us. That's peace. Or in our personal relationships, we have said something that is hurtful to someone else, or we have wounded someone physically or mentally or uh, relationship-wise, and we have asked for forgiveness and have received it. We've experienced the peace of Christ being shared with us through someone else. Or we may have been in conflict with another person and a third party comes in and says, whoa, 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 this is no way to be. Let me help you both and show an outcome instead where there's not a winner or a loser, but there's truly a win-win situation where everyone might have to give up something, might have to give up a little bit of our pride or our position 
or even our own self-righteousness, but at the end, for the sake of the whole and for the sake of the relationship, someone helps us find peace. Friends, when those four things happen, any one of those four, we've experienced the peace of Christ in our lives. We've experienced relief and restoration and health and satisfaction. We find that the absence of conflict and the warring within ceases and there's a new feeling, this calm that comes over the arena of our lives is peace. So as followers, we have been to the mountaintop maybe. We have learned the ways we've experienced it. But what we need to do is we learn that just what the Israelites learned, to practice war no more. That means, in other words, that we've got to sow seeds of peace in the world around us by living it out. Yes, that means being hearers of the word, but also doers of the word. It's being about intentional acts that bring about the peace of Christ in the world around us. We can really do that, the way I look at it, we can do that kind of in three ways. The first way we can do that is we can call out the truth in love. I mean, one of the things that's happening in the world these days is as people get into conversations, is that sometimes people repeat things that aren't true. Folks, falsehoods don't help anything. And you know that, and I know, we know that on a base level, but sometimes in the heat of the moment, we hear people repeating falsehoods, we go, wait a minute, whoa, 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 what would it look like if we called them out on it? Now, I mean this nicely. We called them out in Christian love. We said, wait a minute, hold on. I'm not sure that's true. Where did you read that? Where did you come to understand that point of view or those facts? Is it a reputable source? See, when we do that, when we call out the truth in love, then we are bringing peace to the conflict. Or when there's an obvious conflict, whether it's between relatives or friends or co-workers, what if we would seek out a solution which everyone wins? Helping mitigate, mediate, and adjudicate that conflict so that it would restore and maintain the relationships that people hold valuable. See, what happens is that begins to heal the hurts of the world around us because people take note of what we're doing. And then finally, and this is the toughest one, so let me just tell you, I saved the best for last, because this is very personal. You know, there's the whole point around the reason why they said they beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. That's about burying the hatchet. What would it look like for us to live and to give God's peace by simply doing that in our lives? Those places where we have created and caused obvious fouls and injunctions. What if we asked for forgiveness? What if we were intentional about apologizing for the hurt that we have caused? That forges the way of peace. But not just that, not just the stuff that we've done, but what about what's been done to us? What are the baggage? What is the anger? What is the vitriol? What is the, the stuff that we're carrying with us where someone has fouled us and we're still holding on to that grudge? What would it look like if we offered forgiveness even when it isn't asked for? That we offered it and we just forgave those wounds. See, when we live and when we give acts of peace, 
we're reminding the world of the gift that we have received in Christ. What the Prince of Peace called to us to do, what he came and brought to the world around us. So think about this, where this leaves us today. Is it's not too hard. I mean, you just have to kind of open a window, walk out the door, maybe even just look within. But there is a need for peace in our world, is there not? I mean, it's all over and all around us. And if if we're honest with ourselves, it's even in our own lives. There's a need for peace that we have. In Isaiah's prophecy, what he said is the people went to the mountain. They went to learn the ways of the Lord. The people came to experience peace and they left learning how to live that peace out. Well, friends, we come to the table today. This table of the Lord where remember Christ's body broken for us, Christ's blood shed for us. Remember the peace that he left with us. So we come to the table learning his peace, this idea of forgiveness and grace. We come to the table to experience it in the body and the blood itself. So let us come and then let us rise and let us share with the world this nature of God's peace so that everyone knows that we are a people of peace, children of God, irrevocably changed by the grace that he has given to us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to Heart, Soul, and Mind, the podcast for Centenary United Methodist Church. We hope that you will consider joining us for worship on Sunday mornings at 9 or 11 a.m. Blessings.